I'm not much for jokes, but a guy spots a sign outside of a house that reads, Talking Dog for Sale. Intrigued, he walked in. After familiarities, he was invited to sit down, and then he addressed the dog. So tell me, what have you done with your life? The dog responded in a very, very articulate voice. I've led a full life, says the dog. I lived in the Alps for a while, rescuing avalanche victims. And then I served my country in Iraq. Now I spend my days reading to the residents at the retirement home. The guy's absolutely flabbergasted. He turned to the dog owner and says to him, why in the world would you want to get rid of this remarkable dog? And the owner would reply, he is such an out and out liar. He's never done any of those things. <laughs> now, you have to admit that the story at least gives truth, or should I say bite, to the old saying, lie like a dog. I want us on this occasion, though, to consider what is true and what is false. And I want to relate this category, what is true, and what is false to the word witness, to that activity that the church and Christians give to the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, you can ask the question, is the witness true? The world and its, all of its inhabitants need to know if our witness is true. The church needs to know if its witness is true. Otherwise, we are an institution without a foundation. And you, you, and I need to know whether it is true or not. Otherwise, we base our lives merely on wish fulfillment at best. And at worst, we give false hope to our friends and loved ones. Now, my thesis is simply this. The witness we give to the death and resurrection of Christ, the testimony that we give that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, is a message of redemption and hope to those who believe. It is a message that we are to witness to as the facts of history and the facts of redemption. Jesus said at the beginning of the book of Acts, those who follow him will be his witnesses, first in Jerusalem and then in Judea and Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses, he says, to the church and to the Christian community. Here in our text, Peter repeats the word witness several times, twice in fact. And he states, we are witnesses of everything he did. And again, in verse 41, we have the word witness again. In all, in all, in the book of Acts, the word witness appears at least 13 times. And the title of this sermon is just simply 
witness. Not to be confused with the same famous, very famous bibliography, or depending upon your politics, an infamous bibliography written by Whitaker Chambers back in the 50s. It was simply called Witness. It is a period of history that always bears, uh, if you will, revisiting. It was written during the Cold War in 1952. The word witness there, though, was about, well, the history during the Cold War and also the history of one individual man as he experienced it from a personal perspective. Our word witness is used with respect to salvation history, not simply just history, but history also. Salvation history. How's Geschichte? Salvation history, holy history. But the events which we have uh, to deal with, though, are not simply important for a particular time in history. The events that we have under review here are events which are important for time and for eternity. If the witnesses is true, it is all important. What then is this witness? The first thing I want you to see that we as Christians witness to the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. Now we believe that these are historical events. They are subject, and listen carefully, to historical investigation. Now, if you know much about world religions, you will know this, that almost every world religion, with the exception of one, almost every one of them have nothing to do with history. They have nothing to do with history. They're not dependent on history. There are no events in history that they have to count on being true. It's more, if you will, some of the religions like a therapy or a culture. It really doesn't depend on let's say, one single event really happening. A miraculous event, if you will. An event that we believe occurred in history. And um, there is another religion, Islam, for example, which is subject to the category of history, but yet its scholars will not allow outside scholars and the world to examine the records. And if you do, you may invite a fatwa, or come under condemnation. But let me say that Christianity, the Judeo-Christian tradition, absolutely depends on certain events being true in history. And these events, if they are not true, it means then that we are false witnesses, not bearing witness to the truth. But let me say that Christians are not afraid of the verdict of history. We invite, we invite others to examine the record. We invite anyone with their scientific tools, the best instruments, the best, the best that can be done in this world to examine the claims that we make. Now, of course, a good scholar knows that historical events are difficult to examine from a historical st- uh, and scientific standpoint. Very difficult to go back and get the kind of picture or get the kind of understanding that you can get in a laboratory. They are always in the distance. But then there are ways to judge and evaluate things. 
And what Christians witness to is that Jesus, in fact, did suffer a death on a cross. Now, almost no historian will argue with that. The only ones who do are extreme and marginal and, um, and really do not uh, maybe have the competency or the, the intellect or the mental state to examine things fairly. There's no question that Jesus lived. He was the man considered to be a miracle worker. He did great things for the people. He, he, he lifted up the oppressed. He cast out the devil. He healed the sick. He went about, says the scriptures, doing good. It's also true that at a young age, probably between the ages of 31 and 33, more likely 33, maybe 34, we don't have the age. The last week of his life ended in a crucifixion on a Roman cross. So therefore, those facts are open to history. Almost no one argues with that. What they do argue with is the next thing that we witness to the resurrection. You see, in some sense, the resurrection is a supernatural event. And most historians begin their work by saying nothing supernatural can happen. And because nothing in a supernatural way can happen, it, it, it causes historians trouble. It's not the evidence, by the way. The evidence is very rich. The evidence is very rich. If Jesus' opponent in his day could have found the body of Christ, they could have shut this Christ movement up. They could have suffocated the infant in the crib. But they couldn't produce a body. Moreover, on many occasions, in many places, people saw Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. He even spent time with his disciples, educating them further in matters pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, this is actually more solid in the way of historical evidence than you ever have about Socrates. Yes. And a thousand times more, if you will, historically valid than anything we know about the Buddha. And yes, even about Muhammad. The first life of a Muhammad was written 200 years after he had lived. Moreover, the history that we have of Jesus comes within a generation of eyewitnesses. And then the record begins to be written down. People examine those gospel records. They could challenge them. And yet there was no convincing argument against them. There were eyewitnesses to these events. Peter, in this, in this particular speech in the book of Acts, and when you come to Acts chapter 10, verses 43, 34 through 43, you are hearing a speech that Peter gave, a sermon, if you will, in response to a dream that he had in relation to a Roman centurion who was interested, very interested and curious about who Jesus was. And Peter gave this speech. He says, we are witnesses. Listen to what he says. Verse 39, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews, Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. Our witness is to history, what happened really in history. 
That's what our witness is, just as Peter's is. You say, how is the world's response to this? Well, the world must judge for itself. You're put in a place to decide about this. If historical events really happened, you must decide their value. If you are intellectually honest, you must come to the place where you examine the claims and decide. Each generation and culture does that with respect to our founders, with respect to the 19th century, the 18th century, with respect to 3,000 years ago. You are in a position of being a judge. You are left to decide. Can it be doubted? Obviously, people do it every day. But the question is, are they able to marshal evidence against it that will stand a historical examination? And so far, none has been offered. People have spun many, many, many scenarios trying to explain the resurrection from a natural standpoint. But then we have to come back, did these things really happen? How did the Jesus movement get off the ground? How did it grow to be all over the earth? Why did, why did people go to their death testifying that they had seen the risen Lord? Why did people go to their death believing that they had experienced the presence of God and the peace of God in their heart and life? It is difficult to explain unless something really happened. Yes, history has a verdict to render. Our argument, I'm not saying, is so compelling that you have no choice but to believe. But any argument in history is never that. Our argument is that it is so convincing that billions upon billions have believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they believe him to indeed be that great teacher and rabbi that that Peter witnessed to, that Mary of, Magna, Mary of Magdalene witnessed to. Now, I go to a second point, and you have to follow me carefully here. We witness, though, to a certain interpretation of these events. Most historians will never argue with the events themselves, except for the resurrection, of course, because it's a supernatural event. But notice, most historians really don't, don't, don't argue with the fact that Jesus did good and was crucified on a Roman cross. What they argue with is our interpretation. And our interpretation is summed up with the word gospel. We have an interpretation of those events called gospel. The interpretation is not, in a real sense, subject to history in the same way these events are. Uh, but... The truth is that uh, there are many responses and interpretations in life that are not subject to historical verification. There are, if you will, and in this case, we are talking about a spiritual truth, a witness to a spiritual truth that is not subject to empirical investigation, but is subject to experiential investigation. Eyes are made to see, aren't they? Ears are made to hear. Let me give you an illustration of the kind of truth that I'm talking about. All of us here, for the most part, I, I, I don't see anyone with not having eyes. And I suppose that 
most of us here today, all of us maybe, can see. Now, this is a, a grand and glorious day. Let's say, for instance, and I don't see anything that I want to, but I can see some very pretty red colors in the stained glass window in the back. Don't turn around. <laughs> you can see the red here in the brick. Now, it's purely a scientific matter that my eyes are able, because it has receptors, to receive that red. And so if I point to this, this brick, we would say red brick. Everyone would agree. Now, we don't see the same thing exactly, do we? Our receptors are not just simply copies of each other. I'm standing closer than you are. You're standing back there, so it's subject to perspective. But we can talk about whatever that is as being red. Now, thus far, we've talked about an empirical thing. But what if I see that red and I witnessed a murder some years back and I saw nothing but red blood and destruction? And so when I see red, it may bring back to me memories of long ago. And I may not like the color red because it reminds me of something that my conscience wants to suppress and do away with. But what if I'm a bride-to-be? And on Valentine's Day, my lover sends to me a dozen red roses. And in the note says, I love you. I'm looking forward to our marriage. Every time she sees red, she may think of romance and love. Now notice, we are interpreting what we see or hear and experience. Christians believe indeed that what happened in the life of Jesus was salvation history. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now I want you to notice how Peter does this briefly. He does this by saying that what happened in these events is a fulfillment of what the prophets talked about long ago, all the way back in the Old Testament, even to Adam and Eve, even to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All the prophets, he says in verse 43, testify about him that anyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. There we have God's interpretation on these events. And those who believe in Jesus Christ believe, number one, that their sins are forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ, who died upon a cross to forgive them. They are the ones who believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, and by the power of God as he lives, so shall we live. My friends, we are witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which gives hope to this world. Let me say that anything that you attach meaning to comes under this kind of proof. The proof that you are a self is not an empirical proof, but a spiritual proof. The belief that other people have minds just like you do and selves just like you is the kind of truth I'm talking about. And God gives an interpretation to these events that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The cross was also an impalement. The stick gets sharper. 
It's not just that you are called to believe historical events. You are called to believe the gospel, its interpretation. What will you do with that? Jesus said to Peter on another occasion, Whom do men say that I am? Is he just simply a first century rabbi who stirred up some trouble? Or indeed, is he the Son of God who died for your sins and for mine? And my friend, the verdict requires you to make a judgment in this case. Who is Jesus? How does he relate to you? Have you indeed received him in this way? The prophet quotes Isaiah, and he says very simply that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, and he fulfills what Isaiah told centuries before Jesus came into the world. Paul says, for instance, in Romans, anyone who trusts in him will not be put to shame. And he quotes Isaiah, and Isaiah it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a testing stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation, and those who trust in him will never be put to disgrace. Oh, my friend, there's only one sanctuary. There's only one safety. There's only one hope, and that is in the person and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this, this provides great comfort, doesn't it? Not just hope. I was thinking of the officers that we have buried of recent. And I also got news that Edith Schaefer had passed away. About 10 days ago, she, she was in this church in her teenage years and grew up in Westminster Church. Edith has gone home to be with the Lord at 90 years of age, 98 years of age. Her father was the pastor of this church back in the 30s, 20s actually, 20s, 30s, very early. Our hope is that we will see our loved ones again. But my friend, if Christ be not raised from the dead, listen to what Paul says. You don't have any hope. Our hope is in Christ. Let me close with this. We are still today witnesses to Jesus and to the gospel. The world needs what we have to share. The world needs what we have. I'm not going to survey the world. Let me talk about our own country. We are very fixed on the economy, and economic matters have always great concern. Friends, I am much more concerned about the spiritual and the culture in our country. I am more concerned about those matters. Let me take one example, marriage. Marriage. You know, marriage is an institution that has been around since the beginning of time. Man and woman produce children. Family, parents, children. Now, due to the sinfulness and hardness of the human heart, we have all different kinds of configurations that people don't quite concede, but we, we almost automatically understood marriage and, and, and family as something like nature, like rocks and stones and trees. It's there. We, we almost feel like we didn't invent it. Biology determined it. And who determined our biology? God himself. No one ever thought to change the definition of these things until recent years. No one of any significance. 
No one ever thought to change the relationship between parents and children. No one ever thought to change the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. Just wasn't thought. But that's not the case today. We've come up with arguments that defy, if you will, reason to do what we really want to do that we know is pressing the envelope. Let me say that what we are experiencing today in our public life and before the Supreme Court is a very dangerous thing for our culture or society. Societies do eventually founder morally. No one of the ancient civilizations is alive today, not one. Even Rome fell. You say, well, we're different. Yes, in a way we are. But my friend, our preservation is very dependent upon being reasonable and even more in embracing the gospel. One of our founders said, we've given you, we've given you a democracy or a democratic republic if you can keep it. And what he meant was, it is tied to morality. Not everything and anything goes. Polyamory, a new word for many of us, is alive and well today. Things are shifting in that direction, which will lead to polygamy, which will lead to I do not know what. What am I saying here? The church of the Lord Jesus Christ needs to be faithful in its witness to who Jesus is and what he did for us. We need your help too. I told my brother who, I hope he never hears this, it goes over the thing, uh, who doesn't go to church but professes to be a Christian, you're not being a patriot. And I mean that in the literal sense. Why? We're trying to hold the culture together here. We're trying to keep something together. We're trying to hold things together through what has been believed, taught, and confessed in our midst. And if it is not, something else must replace it. What's going to replace it? We have teachers who call us to positions that are entirely against reason, much less the gospel. Back to the dog. I never forgot the dog. I told the joke deliberately. Or back to dogs. It is difficult to pick up a major novel of any value and not have dogs barking somewhere in the background. Now, you can think of William Faulkner's Light in August or Tolstoy's Death of Ivan Illich. Even Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five all have dogs barking in the background, not to speak of Shakespeare and, of course, of Sherlock Holmes. These dogs, for the most part, are in the background. Our dogs today are up front. Today, the dogs are barking right next to us. Our society is now more willing to listen to the barking of dogs which bark of unreason and insanity than at any time before. You see, our dogs cannot speak, but they still lie and deceive. Let me close with this. 
our challenge. Will you join the company of witnesses to witness to Christ and to his salvation? It not only is your hope, it is the hope only of your society. Praise be to God. Christ is risen. Amen.